The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strains through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Federal Ammunition, Onyx Hunt, Walton's, Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, Grain Belt Premium Beer, North Dakota Tourism, and by the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association. My guest today is Matt Harding with the Cheatgrass Cowboys and Decked USA. We're going to talk about the wild west bird hunts in the mountains, how to hunt partridge, quail, and grouse in rugged terrain, and we'll talk about bird numbers out west, tactics, gear, and a whole lot more. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank, the host with two first names. I'll be your guest, uh, your host, I should say again today. Brandon Morton, as always, is our producer. I'm sitting up here at Deer Camp in northern Minnesota on the eve of our opening day. I've got my boys in camp with me this year, and they woke up early to watch deer out in the field and woke me up after I told them, don't wake up early. We need to sleep in. Anyway, the optimism is high. We get to spend a few days disconnected from everything in the woods. So we're recording a show right now that you will hear in a couple of days. We might take a walk for rough grouse later today before we switch into deer hunting mode. I love to hunt for birds, obviously, but I also love to hunt for deer. There's just something special about walking deep into the wilderness and sitting still enough to let the wild world move around me. I also love to eat deer meat. And so do my kids. I'm hoping to bag two deer this year, which is what the state of Minnesota says that I can take in the area that I'm hunting. My guest today is Matt Harding. Matt, I'm pretty sure you were just on a deer hunt too. Did you get one? I did not. It was uh, it was a pretty rough trip, actually. Um, I drove three and a half hours south of me, hoping to get into some more open country. And as I approached this uh, parking spot that I was going to walk out onto this ridge line, a truck came from the other direction and beat me by literally 30 seconds after a three oh. and a half hour. So that was oh. pretty frustrating. Um, hunted hard all day. I saw a very young buck, which is legal for me to take, but um, it was a little too young for me to feel good about it. So I passed and going to give it another go next week. What are you hunting for out there? What kind of deer? Mule deer? Um, no, this is a blacktail, actually. It's our general rifle season, um, which kind of goes from usually the beginning of October until beginning of November, but um, it's pushed back about a week. So we're getting a little bit closer to the rut. Um, and yeah, blacktail are, are pretty tough. I'm finding out. I've never properly hunted them before. And, uh, you know, I'm hunting them in the same areas that I hunt mountain quail and rough grouse and blue grouse. So it's super, super thick. Um, glassing is pretty difficult. Um, I'm kind of using the similar tactics to mountain quail where I'm looking for sort of uh, up to three or four year old burns and working those edges because um, edge habitat's pretty hard to find in the mountains here unless it's uh, 
you know, a timber company, uh, of which I don't have a lease to hunt. So I'm gotcha. stuck in the thing. Well, when we were texting the other day and you said you're deer hunting, I was kind of surprised by that because I, I know how much you love to bird hunt. Why are you hunting for deer? Uh, so basically I had a Idaho mule deer tag that, uh, was in the middle of last month and it, the tag basically went from the day that decked announced a new product was coming until the day that we released a new product. So I wasn't able to go on that hunt, which was very disappointing. And now I'm just a little bit fired up to go fill the freezer. So I'm going to give it a couple more days and uh, I'm actually looking forward to the season closing so I can focus on birds. <laughs> what do you think your chances are that you're going to get a blacktail? Uh, 4%. Four? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a sucker hunter, man. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really cut out for chasing deer and this thick stuff, but, uh, yeah, it's been really tough for me. You know, I'd much rather chase mule deer in chucker country. It just feels more natural to me, but, um, yeah, it's tough. So, um, slim pickings. Well, I've hunted with you and I feel like you're very well cut out for the hunt. Like just the, your ability to put on the miles needed to get into the places where few others want to go, I think would make you an exceptional big game hunter, especially out there in that terrain. Yeah, I always say my only skill in hunting is the ability to just hike hard and steep and far and the rest of my, my skills are kind of lacking. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll lean on what I'm getting. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into some of the tactics about what makes a really good bird hunter out in that country in a little bit. And one of them, uh, spoiler alert, is your just ability to push through and, and cover a lot of ground. Um, but you mentioned something uh, that I thought we, sh we could get into because the last time you were on this show, you were working for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And we were hunting together out there um, in Nevada. And you don't live in Nevada anymore. You live where? I'm in Bend, Oregon now. And what brought you there? Uh, my wife got a job. Um, we When we originally lived in Oregon, we were actually planning to move to Bend. And then she ended up getting the job in Reno. Um, so we went down there. We had our first kid. And then, you know, kind of realized that we needed to go somewhere with better schools and, you know, a little more family friendly. And not that Reno is terrible by any means, but... Um, you know, we had some good friends in Bend and it's a very kind of outdoorsy family centric town and great schools and great activities for kids and parks and everything. So, um, she got the job up here and yeah, we moved here a little over two years ago. I can't believe it's been that long since you. Holy and I crap. I felt like it was just last year, two years already. I know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been longer, I think, cause I've been at deck almost, uh, almost three years now. So it's been a while. What's happening at DECT? Because I know you guys just released a, a brand new product last week, and that's been a big deal for you. I know you've been working hard on it, like you said. But what, uh, you know, obviously you're talking to kind of a, a big core audience for you. You know, what what's new at DECT with the storage system that you guys are pumped about? Yeah, it's been, it's been both exciting and exhausting and stressful. It's been... Uh, a hell of a ride for, for me and the team. Um, so we basically totally redesigned our flagship product, with, which is a drawer system. 
Um, it's been a couple years in the making and, um, yeah, we released it on October 24th. Uh, and you know, if, if you've had a drawer system, you kind of, kind of know how they work, but essentially what we did is, uh, on the inside of the drawers, there's, um, you know, on the old system, it was, it was angled inward. So it wasn't like a, a right angle, which made packing a little tricky. And we did that because of the way the plastic came off the molds. Um, and we worked around that. And now there's a 1% angle and it's basically a right, right angle. Um, so everything fits in there a lot better. Um, we've gained 10%, um, volume inside the drawers, which is, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you go from the old system to the new system, it feels kind of life changing. It's, it feels a lot bigger than 10%. Um, we also did away with the ammo cans, which were on the side of the, uh, or, or on each corner of the system. And now those are bigger openings, which are great now. Like, you know, I use like a lot of people, those Gatorade bottles and squeeze bottles, uh, mm-hmm. on my vest. And now I can fit like eight of them down one side. Um, and then two or three dog bowls and a shovel down the other side. So that's gained a lot of, uh, a lot of usable space, which was otherwise wasted. Um, and then another big improvement that really speaks to, um, the Upland community is we have integrated tie downs on top. So there's, um, you know, various locations where you can set them up. Uh, they're all movable. Um, and, they work great with kennels, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think in the past to try and make it work on either the bed rail or, um, you know, on the integrated tie downs where on the truck, where the drawer system actually attached to, but now we've got super strong, um, tie downs, uh, kind of along the, the sides of the system. So it gives you the ability to put two kennels next to each other and strap them down or one in the middle or put it in the back or in the front or wherever you want to do it. So that's going to be huge for, yeah. for the bird dog world. Yeah, no doubt. That's a big deal on that. Um, I I look at the setup and I've never installed one myself and I've wondered, can one guy do it themselves? Or is this like, what kind of install project are you looking at when you put one of these in your truck? Um, I mean, that's another great thing about the new system is it comes partially assembled um so you know probably like a third of the work is done for you compared to the old one mm. and the install is just generally easier um so yeah you can totally do it with one person um i've done quite a few of them obviously so i could do it solo in a couple of hours it's basically like ikea furniture we've got really good instructions and you know it's no different to installing ikea furniture you don't need any special tools and um and yeah, the new system is just a breeze to install. Gotcha. Well, I can say because I've now had, a, I've got a new truck here that I got a couple of weeks ago and I still don't have the back end completely set up the way I want to. And I've, cause I've just been on the road so much this time of the year, I'm never home. So I can't do a lot of the things that I need to get done. And I tell you, I am losing my mind, not having things organized. I have stuff for, you know, my dog, my hunting equipment, shells, water, vests. I mean, like all the things that we need as a bird hunter. And I feel like I just am like a yard sale out there. Like I just don't know where anything is and it's driving me absolutely insane. So if you're a hunter that's listening right now and you're like, I just don't have a good 
storage system, I know from uh, experience that the deck system obviously gives you the ability to really have everything that you need when you go somewhere um, in a stored place that's dry. That's a big deal because you're going into places that aren't dry. Um, you know, so uh, I would definitely suggest if people that are listening now haven't already looked into it, that they would look into either the deck system or, I mean, do you guys, are there any, uh, I know you probably don't want to give a shout out to any of your competition, but is there anybody else that makes one like your guys' system? The, the closest one, I mean, there's quite a few popping up like that are similar, but different. Um, you know, like the explosion of the overlanding kind of craze has really yeah. spurred a lot of not, not copycats, just different, um, different products that serve a similar purpose. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the closest one is truck vault and they make a great product. It's just very expensive, very heavy, and, um, doesn't quite take the beating that our product takes. And then some of the other more kind of niche products are more like cabinets. Um, and again, you know, you're not going to have that, that weatherproofness or the durability. Um, it kind of suits someone that's, um, you know, a little more delicate with their gear, um, than a lot of us are. Um, so yeah, I mean, we don't really have a like for like competition right now. And I think a big part of that is, you know, the, the sort of care and, um, you know, the, just the determination to get the manufacturing process down the way it is. Um, you know, we're totally made in the USA in, out of Ohio and all the plastic is recycled. Um, we've always been in stock even through all through COVID. Um, so, you know, when the company was set up, just like the attention to detail in the manufacturing process, just set us apart from, from anyone and future proofed us for, you know, things like COVID. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, it's really far very high. Um, so anyone coming in will have to do significant effort to kind of get to where we, we are now. Gotcha. How heavy is that system? The new one? It's about 200 pounds. That's it. Nice. Yep. Gotcha. Um, all right. Well, are are you feeling good about the launch of the new product? Is it being well received? It's been absolutely insane. I mean, uh, the sales figures on the first few days were way above what we projected. Um, so it's been a bit of a madhouse at Deck recently. You know, we thought we got through the craziness with getting the launch done, and we also rebranded at the same time. Um, but now, you know, it's just full steam ahead. I mean, the orders are going crazy. And, um, you know, my job is kind of working with ambassadors and influencers and brand partners. So I'm struggling to get my orders out while, you know, we kind of keep up with paying customers. So it's, it's been, it's been crazy, but yeah, I definitely can't complain. It's been awesome so far. I love to hear that. Um, so does that mean you can't hunt as much as you want to? (laughs) Uh, October was tough. Um, yeah, I mean, I went away in uh, September. I went out to Bolivia to fly fish. So that kind of took a lot of, uh, you know, my flexibility away by going mm-hmm. on that trip. So October was not quite a write-off. Like I did, uh, uh, I don't know, five or six days of bird hunting in October. So it wasn't terrible, but definitely not what I'm used to. So 
yeah, hopefully things settle down and, uh, you know, I can get it, get into the season a bit harder. Gotcha. That just to touch on the Bolivia trip. I mean, obviously your photos, if people haven't followed you, they should just because of the, the visuals that you capture are amazing out there. Um, but what was it about Bolivia that made you want to go on that adventure? Yeah. So the, um, you know, I've never been to the Amazon before, so that was a huge draw just to go somewhere with insane biodiversity and just like, you know, like that place is teeming with life. Um, so I wanted to experience that. And then I'm an avid fly fisher. Um, I don't really fly fish during the hunting season, but outside of it, that's kind of my main, main jam. Um, but they've got a fish there called the golden Dorado, which is a, you know, incredibly predatory fish. Um, and you're basically fishing for these, you know, anywhere from six to I don't know, on our trip, probably six to 25 pounds. Um, but they get big, you know, they get like 40 pounds and you're fishing for them in very similar rivers to like a trout river. So it's like tiny water, you're sight fishing, uh, you're using flies that are like, you know, mice or caterpillars or, uh, top water? lizards. Yeah. I fished a lot of top water. Um, you know, you're fishing a ton of streamers as well, but, um, I had a day where I used a lizard as a fly and I, I got four or five fish like that. Um, and it's just crazy to see these fish eat. I mean, it's like nothing we have in North America. You know, <laughs> I think probably the closest thing is some of the stuff you do with, you know, the muskies. pike and the muskie. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about muskies cause the explosion I tried when I take people out, I mean, years of guiding for muskies and people from all over the country and other countries would come and fish them. And I, you know, like I try to, mentally prepare them for what's about to happen. But I tell them like, there's a bunch of ways to catch them. But if you catch one on top water, you'll never forget it. Like the visual will be stuck with you forever. And I'm like, well, like, what is it like? And I said, well, it's kind of like a water buffalo falling out of a helicopter. <laughs> the explosion <laughs> is just like, you just can't, I don't know, like, I'll tell you what to expect, but nothing I tell you will actually mentally prepare you for what's about to happen. And yeah, that explosion, the the hunt, like a muskie will stalk it sometimes. And so the water, it looks like a submarine rising behind it. You know, the, they'll, it'll create its own wake when they're hunting it. And then their mouth will just come out and take it. Now, I don't know what a Dorado is, but, um, you know, I've, I've seen some of these predator fish like that. And I, I have this hunt within me. It's probably why I like hunting with you because you and I would go as far away from the next human as possible to get into the craziest place to, to get our birds, you know, but like the thrill of the hunt is so exciting to me. And there's a few fish on my bucket list. Tarpon on the fly on a top water is one of them. Maybe it doesn't have to be on the fly, just on top water, but, um, peacock bass and then the dorado too so can you explain what that was like when they would explode is, it, is there any way to really sum that up i mean it's pretty crazy because they're very reactionary um so we had very difficult conditions when we went there the water was very low very clear um whereas usually it's it's higher it's muddy um and there's a lot of migratory fish in the system so they hadn't had rain almost their entire season. So there were no migratory fish in the river and usually they're a bit bigger. So 
you know, the biggest we kind of came across was sort of 22, 25 pounds. Um, but yeah, because of that, you know, conditions were tough. We're fishing the fish that have been fished for their entire season. Mm. And so it was very similar to what you'd expect in somewhere like New Zealand, where you're stalking them, you're kind of creeping along the river bank, walking a few feet, uh, looking for the fish, walking a few more feet, looking for the fish. And then you get one opportunity and that's it. And, you know, if you're throwing a, a streamer to a trout, um, uh, that's sitting in the current, generally what you're doing is you're casting above it and beyond it. And then as it floats down, you're kind of pulling it into the path of, of the trout. Yep. And the biggest kind of difficulty I had was they want you to cast the fly and land immediately on top of the fish, like on its face. There's no like pulling it into its path or anything like that. And, you know, you do that on a trout and it's game over. The, the fish is gone. Yeah. Um, so that was a tough adjustment. So, you know, the first time, the first few times I cast at him, I was fishing for them like trout. And then the guide is just like, no, put it right on its nose. So the very first time I did that, it just took me totally off guard. It felt so unnatural to just, you the know, second it hit the water, it just exploded. The second on it. it hit. Yeah. And the problem is you're casting and the second it hits the water, you've got to have tension. So as you launch the fly, you're kind of, uh, you're preparing the for the landing already in the air. Exactly. Yeah. So it was, it was very technical fishing. And then hmm. as soon Ends, you've got to just strip set the hell out of it you know i bet got, you loved every second of it though huh oh it was it was epic and yeah we we had a great trip you know fishing was really tough for the whole group but everybody got great fish and we actually did a camping trip so there was a, a small lodge there which is a bit more like glamping than a lodge and then <laughs> we went all the way to the top of the system about as far as these canoes can go set up camp um, we actually did that on the very first day and then we hiked, uh, to the headwaters and, you know, got into some, not like virgin waters, but, you know, uh, very unmolested and, you know, pristine waters up there and really skinny for the size of the fish there. Now is a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Walton's.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. A toast to the hunters from your friends at Grain Belt. May the mornings be clear and the fresh air be crisp. May you find solace in the silence. May the stillness settle your soul. May your long shots stay true. May your heart roam free. May you find what you seek in the fields you stock. May your call to the wild be answered. And at the end of the day, may you share the thrill of the hunt with your friends. So here's to the eight pointers and the 12 ounces. Here's to you and to your thirst for adventure. Bring Grain Belt to the outdoors with our limited edition premium hunting season pack. This season, enter to win a hunting trip for two to Brown's Hunting Lodge, wherever you can find premium 12 and 24 pack cans. 
For more information, visit our website at grainbelt.com forward slash hunting dash trip. A healthy dog is a happy dog, and a dog's optimal health ultimately starts with an optimal diet. That's why I trust Nutrisource Performance Dog Food to keep Daisy healthy and running to her full potential. Nutrisource now has a full circle feeding plan that can help your dog achieve their full potential too. The full circle feeding plan revolves around their entire lineup of Nutrisource dog foods that contain their good for life system. The Nutrisource good for life system is packed with probiotics, prebiotics, and proprietary minerals that work together to support your dog's heart health and gut health. By combining this system and all of their dry foods and wet foods, you can rotate carbs and proteins like chicken, beef, fish, and lamb to meet and exceed your dog's needs and accelerate their natural desire to eat. Plus, their toppers like kombucha add even more health benefits for our dogs. Learn more about Nutrisource dog foods and the benefits of their full circle feeding plans at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. I don't want to keep going down the, the fishing topic too long because most of our listeners want to talk bird hunting. But when I take people out, you know, I've been, I guided for muskies for like 25 years, not really on the fly. Some people wanted to do it on the fly, you know, so I would accommodate that. But most of it's conventional gear. And one thing that always played out and it will forever play out is like, okay, we're working towards a spot and muskies are a, a predator fish that hunt, you know, and they'll ambush and they will typically set up on a piece of structure. There's a reason why it's usually it's a boulder or it's a log or there's something weeds or something that's keeping them there. But when you find the spot, I'm like, okay, there's a 48 incher right there, or there's a 52 incher here. Like, Every time I would tell somebody, okay, you got to cast, you know, and I'd point on like, you need to cast right there. And I would tell them why. And there's a fish there, like in their mind, they would just freeze up and the cast would go straight backlash. And now all of a sudden it lands short of it or something. And I'm like, oh, and I guess what they don't typically realize is like, that's your chance. You, you have one chance, maybe two, but typically one chance to, to make that cast happen and then it's like, oh, you burnt it. You know, now the boat's drifting, shallow water. They see it. They're going to spook. They're not going to take it, whatever. Like there's a lot that goes into it. Most guides will position things um, accordingly so that you get the best opportunity at it. But there's something on the mental side of it that gets people in their head. Like they can't, they just can't land it because it's, it's almost, it would be better if I didn't say anything. Like I'd, I'd never told them that there was a fish there and they just, they just made the cast blindly not knowing so that they didn't get in their own heads on it. Um, I don't know. I, maybe that, maybe we can just segue that into hunting in that sometimes you get in your mind, you get in your own head and you, you'll rush a shot or you just put yourself in the wrong position because you're overthinking it versus just pushing forward and being present in the moment. For sure. I think like, you know, both with fishing and hunting, I think confidence plays a huge role, you know, like, uh, that, that fishing trip, you know, by the end of it, I was insanely confident and, you know, I was getting all my shots and sticking all the fish and the same thing goes with, with bird hunting. I mean, we all go through the ebbs and flows of, you know, being marksmen and then shooting holes in the sky. And <laughs> yeah. I feel so much of that is confidence and, yeah, you, you know, it can make or break a trip sometimes, you know, just like being stressed out and missing, missing the opportunity on the only fish of the day. You know, it's a, it's a big confidence game, at least for me. Yeah. One thing I've been doing this year, and I mentioned this on the last couple of shows is like, I, my dog is, has 
just really taking things to uh, the next level. And, you know, when she's on point, like I don't need to rush. I don't need to get there. She's not going to, she's not going to flinch. And that bird is going to be there when I get there. So I, as I'm approaching, like, you know, your, your level of excitement goes up and what's going to happen here. And, you know, as in a pass, I used to want to always get there right away and make sure that I was, she, I was able to flush it before she did or whatever. And, I would hurry the shot or rush the shot, especially when there's other people and the cameras there and they're filming everything. Like you just get in your head. Now I'm just, as I'm walking up, I just pause for a moment and I just, okay, slow down, walk in, take aim, take the shot. And I just feel like I'm, I'm hitting 75% more birds than other years when I would rush it. So I don't know if it's just a reminder to people that if you're hunting with a dog that goes on point, slow down a little bit. The last few feet, just remind yourself, don't rush the shot as best as you can do it and have confidence in it. Like you said, you get that confidence and then you stop thinking about it and you just you just get in the moment and enjoy it. Um, Matt, who are the cheatgrass cowboys? Yeah, so that's a, a new project that I started. I'm doing it with Travis Warren, and, and we've got a couple other people helping out as well. And basically, we wanted to kind of have a creative outlet, um, you know, for photo and video work, and also just really focus on Western upland hunting, you know, stuff that's, that's difficult, um, you know, focus on the adventure and the journey and the places as opposed to stacking birds on the tailgate um she just felt like that style of hunting was a little underrepresented across the upland space and we just wanted to you know put a little more more dedication into showing people what we do and having a place for others to kind of share what they do as well so where are you uh where can people follow along is it instagram only are you going to do a lot of videos is it going to expand do you have a big big grand plan for this or is it something that you're trying to keep on Instagram? Yeah, there is definitely a big grand plan for it. And I don't want to say too much because I don't want to uh, commit my, myself and then have plans change. Um, <laughs> we had plans change quite a bit. Um, but yeah, it's going to be on YouTube. Uh, right now we are only on Instagram. It's cheatgrass underscore cowboys. Mm-hmm. And then you know, you, you just search Cheatgrass Cowboys on YouTube and um, we're going to be posting the first video there pretty soon. Um, so we'll be doing, you know, some smaller segments, sort of uh, how to's, gear reviews, things like that. But, you know, the main focus of the project is to create some short stories that sort of just talk about adventure in the uplands. Um, so, you know, we're planning things like doing a big through hike at Pell's Canyon and a, a road trip to do the quail slam and you know there's uh undoubtedly going to be a lot of chucker ptarmigan and himalayan snowcock content coming in the next couple of years will you ever move further to the east and get into pheasant country um i don't know like yeah i guess the answer is no because <laughs> i have pheasants here and the pheasants that i hunt here are actually in chucker country so i can do my favorite thing while chasing pheasant and that's pretty hard to beat. So I do really want to experience, uh, you know, pheasant hunting in the Dakotas and things like that. Um, but you know, for this, the sake of this project, it's very much like 
you know, oriented around steep country and mm-hmm. uh, adventure. I saw that you did get some pheasants already this year out there. How are the pheasant numbers out west this season? They seem to be really good. Um, you know, it's always tough um, when you have a really, really insane winter. And last winter was wild for us. There was just snow basically from October until, you know, the springtime, uh, which is kind of rare. Uh, you know, usually it snows, it melts, snows, it melts. Um, but, you know, in a lot of the, the places I hunt, it was covered in snow all year. So, you know, that could go several ways, you know, like you're getting much needed moisture, but then also if, you know, the ground is snow covered, the birds struggle to eat. And then if the valley floor is also snow covered, then it gets even, even more difficult. And then we had a wet spring. Um, we had like, you know, a frost in June and we had snow in I think May as well. So it was kind of all over the place, but so far, um, you know, the pheasant numbers have been great. The quail numbers have been great. I've done two days of chucker hunting. Um, one, I shot a limit and the other one, it was a morning hunt and I got half a limit. So, you know, that's, I don't know if that's a great way to measure it, but you know, mm-hmm. limits in chucker hunting, especially in Oregon are, are pretty tough to get. So I'm really hoping it's a sign of, you know, a banner hatch and just another great year. Cause last year was awesome. So in pheasant country here, a lot of, uh, the bird population up and down just directly correlates with grass on the ground. Um, you know, if even in tough winters and less than ideal spring, uh, hatching conditions, if there's enough grass on the ground, we're going to have pheasants. But I feel like out West, everything is because like your habitat up in the mountains, it doesn't get disturbed like it does here on the flat ground where a farmer can literally just drop a plow and take the grass away, you know? Um, So is it more so just moisture that dictates bird populations out there? Yeah, I I think moisture, the winter, um, you know, I don't really hunt pheasant on on ag land um so i I can't really speak to that um but you know just them having some thermal cover in in like the deep dark winter i think plays Mm -hmm. a huge role and i tend to hunt them at the bottom of you know basically chucker canyons um and generally down in like some deep draws that have some you know blackberry or willows or something like that um cattails whatever um you know these would be like perennial creeks um sure and usually the cover is really good there and the nice thing about it is you can hunt chucker and then just walk straight down and walk along the creek and all the birds are concentrated into this one strip of habitat um so you know it's probably a very different experience to to what you guys do in your neck of the woods where you know they could be across an entire field or you know um just more spread out but they're really condensed here and and they're they're in that thick stuff with, with quail as well. So it makes for a really great mixed bag. Yeah, totally. Uh, how about for the other birds though, too? I mean, birds up in the mountains, the quail, the chucker, is it moisture based more than anything that dictates the bird numbers? Yeah, I think so. And then also just like how the spring goes with the hatch. Um, cause 
like I said, you know, you can get snow in May or June sometimes. And, um, you know, that's going to be pretty detrimental, especially if the birds have already gone through a tough winter. Um, despite all the moisture we, we got, you know, we still had a lot of fires and that plays a, a big role in, in habitat as well. And sometimes, you know, these, these fires in cheatgrass country can really travel quickly. Um, you know, some of those fires in Nevada over the years, you know, I think 2017, 18, 19, I mean, there were some that were like, you know, the size of several counties, um, in some smaller States. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of everything, you know, fire, water. Um, those are kind of two very, um, very important factors out West. So in the Midwest, I feel like when bird numbers are high, specifically pheasants, the hunter numbers go up with it. And then people are, you know, oh, there's hunters everywhere, hunters everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden the bird numbers go down, there's less hunters, so it fluctuates a little bit. Because your bird numbers up there, quail and chucker and everything are are good this year, are you seeing more hunters out there in the field chasing them? Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's a little bit different because to get to chucker country and to get a good grasp on the numbers is an immense effort. Um, you know, you can't really drive roads and like do road surveys and they do do aerial surveys in Nevada. I, at least I, I, I think they still do it by air because they, they had a helicopter crash during a survey a few years ago that started a fire. Um, so I'm not sure if they're still doing it by air, but, um, Nevada department of wildlife actually released like a, a chucker survey where they go across like the main sort of, uh, chucker counties or units and then they'll do these surveys and sort of count adults and chicks and try and get an idea and some people live or die by those those kind of surveys i don't really pay much attention to it because i have my spots that i like to go to and there's reasons i like to go to them and um and you know like when they're like oh you know uh the chucker numbers are amazing in this county I think you will see an increase of pressure there. Whereas in Oregon, we don't have any surveys like that. And you've really got to get boots on the ground to get an idea. And the only way you really figure it out is after a couple months of chasing the birds. And you're like, wow, it's, it's a lot better this year. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's tough to get a good grasp on numbers in the places that I hunt because you've just got to get out there and burn boot rubber to figure it out. Yeah, let's let's get into some tactics if you don't mind. I, I know you um, you're working on some content, like you mentioned earlier, to kind of help people to find birds to be successful out there. So let's start with chucker. I, if you want to be a good chucker hunter, what do you need to do? What is it? What are the requirements to be successful at it? Um, the requirements I'd say is having a gun and a dog. The bonuses are being very in shape um you know you can be out of shape and come and try it but um you know it's it's difficult as you know so Mm -hmm. it definitely helps to be in shape um i think mentality plays a big part in it um you know with chucker like a lot of time there's not necessarily you know like i mentioned about pheasants where you're hunting creek bottoms and the habitat is very obvious um you know with chucker yeah habitat is obvious but also it's expansive so sometimes it's difficult to 
hone in on a spot. Like you get to a mountain range and you look at it and you're like, yeah, there's chucker everywhere here. Um, yeah. So narrowing it down can be a little difficult. Um, the way I usually narrow any hunt down is, is around springs or some kind of water source, especially early season. Um, cause you know, the birds have been sitting there. It's been a hot, long summer and, um, you know, birds do congregate around water. Um, another thing about water is guzzlers and I'm not a guzzler hunter, but a lot of people use that as a big part of their strategy. Um, and, uh, there are guzzler maps, uh, that you can buy from various, you know, fishing game organizations. And there are guzzlers listed on Onyx. Now, the reason I don't target them is because everybody else targets them. Um, you know, you'll go to a guzzler and you see shells all over the place and footprints and tracks from somebody's truck. And it's kind of like a good old boys tactic, you know, sure. like, La- or lazy, a lazy tactic. Yeah, you could yeah. Say. yeah. It's just like one of those things. It's like, you know, you get there first thing in the morning, like within the first hour of light and there's going to be birds watering there. And they're all going to be down on flat land and a little vulnerable. And it's not, you know, like you're probably not going to get good dog work out of it. And the best thing about chakra hunting for me is like, apart from, you know, the, the terrain and the views, it's the dog work you get from it. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like tailor made to good dog work. So that's my favorite part about it. And yeah, that's a, a big reason why I don't hunt the guzzlers. It's just uh, a bit of a bit of a wild west scene around those things. Sure. Well, I, even when you and I hunted them together a couple of years ago, you know, like we had this plan and you had a lot of confidence in it. And we, we hunted, we hiked, we hiked, we put miles on, we kept going higher and higher and higher. And we worked the tops, we worked the sides. We ultimately found the birds down at the base of the mountains that day. How often do you find that their elevation can change by a thousand, two thousand feet? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty common. I mean, um, a good thing to note is if you're at a, at a mountain that goes from 2000 to 5,000 feet and the, the first cover you find is at 4,000, you know, you should probably stick on that elevation band and, and side hill around the mountain at that, because the birds are very habitual and they'll move up and down based on, you know, temperature and, and weather and water and things like that. Um, and snow, of course. Um, so, yeah, once you find them, the other coveys are probably going to be pretty similar. And sometimes, yeah, like that first day that you and I went out, I mean, we there was a creek there that was just gushing with water in the middle of the Nevada desert. And, you know, that that should be a gold mine for birds. And we found it pretty tough. Um, and the birds were very jumpy, you know, because we got some pretty warm weather those first couple days. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, we, you know, like I think it, I, I blame it on the camera. I, I Always. think we didn't have that. Yeah. You know, I, I remember texting you a few days before and I think I shot a limit and a bunch of quail and I was like, oh, things are looking good. We're going to have a great time. <laughs> so I probably It's the curse of the camera, man. Yeah. Well, so let's switch to some of the quail species that you hunt out West. So in Oregon, um, how many different quail species can you hunt there? We've got California quail and mountain quail here. Do you have any bob whites? Funny you mention it. I shot one last year. Did you really? Uh, it was pretty crazy. Um, I went out in a snowstorm 
and I, I went with a buddy who was new to hunting and we were probably two miles from the truck and in, into some, some deep canyons and Cedar went on point and my, my friend walked in, I was up on a cliff and I told him to just walk in. I wasn't going to make it down this cliff because I was cliffed out and he walks in and the birds flush and he missed and the birds flush. And I was like, those looked really weird. I almost feel like they looked like Bob whites, but maybe it's just the snowstorm we're in. And so we relocated them. I shot one and it was indeed a Bob white. And there was a covey of about eight of them. And I have no idea how they got there. Um, this terrain is so steep and, you know, pretty, pretty remote, you know, like it's so far from any town. It's not a place where you'd have like dog trials or somebody like nobody would drive all the way out there to, you know, plant birds for training purposes. So I was just totally baffled about why the birds were there. Um, I did notice this year on Oregon's regulations that they had an asterisk at the bottom that said Bob White quail count towards your daily limit. So I don't I, I haven't had a chance to call our our, um, you know, upland bird coordinator, but it's been on my list of things to do because I am just baffled about that. And huh. yeah, it was a crazy hunt. It was just total snowstorm. We got um, Chucker Hun, California quail. Uh, we got a baffle head, a blue wing teal, and then a Bob white all on the same walk. It was wild. Oh, that's awesome. That's so, well, I've mentioned it too many times on this podcast. I'm just going to skip it. I just love going places that you can have a, a mixed bag. If you're looking for an awesome bird hunting adventure, then now is a great time to head to the state of North Dakota. Why? Well, this year, the state of North Dakota has reported that pheasant counts are up 61% from last year. The sharp-tailed grouse numbers are up 116%. And get this, the Hungarian partridge numbers have tied an all-time high that comes in at 200% above last year. I've already hunted in North Dakota this season, and I've seen these bird numbers for myself. Water levels are also up, which means the total number of wetlands are up. 76% above the long-term average. The state's breeding duck index was the 23rd highest on record this year. 39% above the long-term average at 3.4 million. All of these numbers mean that there are more ducks, more geese, pheasants, sharpies, and Hungarian partridge on the landscape. In North Dakota, you can experience an epic waterfowl hunter in the peak of the fall migration and have the best upland hunt of your life all in the same day. I know this because I've done it myself. Start planning your world-class hunt in North Dakota at hellond.com. If you're an active outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Well, our friends at Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for all of your hauling needs, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma Trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. 
Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own maps, apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public, the landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. Um, let's let's talk about the two main quail species there. If somebody wants to try to hunt for quail out west, uh, maybe break down kind of what goes into your planning on how to target each each individual species. So I'll start with California quail or, or the valley quail. Um, so I don't specifically target them. Um, they are always a bonus on on a chucker hunt or a pheasant hunt. Um, I tend to like to hunt a lot of spots that have the opportunity for mixed bags just because I enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I'm hunting in that sort of, you know, steep canyons and cheatgrass covered hills. And that makes finding quail much easier because like I said, they're going to be concentrated at the bottom of the draws and thicker cover. Uh, once in a while they're up on the hills, but generally not. They, they like the protection that they get down low. So finding them at least on the east side of the state is pretty easy just because it's so dry. They're going to be right next to water or a creek or a river. Um, so they're a lot easier to target on the west side of the state. You know, it's, it's thick, it's green, there's vegetation absolutely everywhere. So they're a little more uh, difficult to specifically target. Um, and I don't really hunt anything other than mountain quail and grouse on the west side of the state. And then what? with okay. mountain quail, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, keep going. Okay. Yeah. So with mountain quail, um, the nice thing about them is they open September 1st at the same time as um, rough grouse and blue grouse. So typically, my season kind of goes like September 1st until sort of this time at the end of October, I'll really try and focus on mountain quail and rough grouse. And I do that because it's generally a, a bit warmer and everywhere that I hunt chucker is super snaky. Um, I've had both dogs get bitten by now and I'm pretty sick and tired of it. So I'm very careful. I, I like to wait until it gets a good freeze before I really start chasing chucker. So September 1st is great. You know, you can hunt quail and the limit is 10. Um, so it gives you a lot of opportunity for extra hunting as opposed to just going out and shooting a couple of grouse. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool start to the season. How are your grouse numbers out there this year? Uh, so I've only seen one blue grouse so far. I have not done, like I said earlier, I haven't done as many days as I usually do by this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but typically... September, you're seeing uh, rough grouse and blue grouse overlap. Um, 
like you could be hunting one area and I actually kicked up a group of five. I doubled on the group of five and one was a blue grouse. One was a rough grouse. So they are right in together early season. Um, as it gets colder, you know, the, uh, the blue grouse start to move up to the top of the mountains. And then as soon as the snow comes in, those roads are pretty treacherous and mm -hmm. it would be a terrible place to get, get stuck. So I kind of will chase a blue grouse early on. And then as it gets colder, I'm focusing a little bit more on mountain quail. Um, cause September 1st is, is early for mountain quail. Like you're a covey gets up and you knock a couple birds out of it. You know, they, there could be some really young ones in there that don't have plumage and mountain quail are one of the most beautiful birds in the uplands. And, to knock one down is so gratifying. And then to get one that's like a little baby and it's all gray, it's a little disappointing and you feel a little bit bad about it. So, you know, I try not to chase the quail too early on, sort of like mid to late September is when I really get after it. And then October is usually pretty prime. The leaves are changing. It's beautiful. The birds are out. Uh, they're more mature. You just see less blue grouse as, as the season goes on. So now that we're in, my, in November, heading into December, I mean, your season runs through January. Is it into February out there too? No, it's end of January in Oregon. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple other states that are later, like Nevada goes a bit later. I think Wyoming extended their season this year. Um, so I go until the end of January and then hunt the Nevada closer. And then that's kind of it for me. Gotcha. So if if you have a free day, what do you hunt for? Like, what is your ultimate bird hunt? What's your favorite and why? Uh, chucker all day long. Um, you know, I, like I said, I love the dog work. I love the terrain. I love to feel physically challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get back from a really long hunt, you know, say you do 10 to 15 miles in chucker country, you get back to the truck, like you're, you're hurting. You know, it's, it's a long day. It's steep. You've done a few thousand feet of elevation gain. And if you don't shoot a bird, at least you get a workout, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I just love everything about it. I just love to see the dogs range more and see them out in that open country and lock up on the other side of a Canyon. And it takes you 40 minutes to get to, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's that's, just a little wild at times. That's exactly I mean, you summed it up. Like, I think you and I have, we share the same reasons why we enjoy that kind of a hunt. And I tell people, I'm like, there's just nothing like watching a good dog hunt through the mountains and go on point on the side of a canyon. And then you have to figure out how to get there. And then when you get the bird, just like you hold that in your hand and it just, I don't know, it's just something to me, like I, I have a very deep love for rough grouse because here in the Midwest, I mean, and then the forest, I mean, it's so thick and to, to get one pointed and then flush it and then to hit that thing, you know, like it takes a lot to, to get it. And it's, it's a different challenge up in the mountains. Um, but man, it's, it's just so dang rewarding and you don't need to get into a lot of them for it to be just like the best hunt. I mean, yeah, I, I enjoy the scenery. I enjoy everything about it. Um, you know, and one thing, Matt, that I think a lot of people, I'm sure you get this question asked regularly. I know we get it a lot. People say like at least once or twice, maybe even more a week, I get asked, I'm, I'm looking to get a dog. What do you think I should get? A bird dog. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I can't answer that. 
you know, it, where do you live? I don't even know what you're hunting. What do you, what kind of birds you hunt? What's the habitat? What kind of boots should I get? That's, that's the most yeah. common one I hear. Oh, the boots. Yeah. I was going to ask you that too, just for, uh, you know, talking into hunting in the mountains, the gear, but like, let's start with the dogs to, to bird hunt like you do in the mountains. If, if somebody asks what kind of dog would I want to hunt there? What do you tell them? Um, I mean, it's got to be a pointing breed. Like, it doesn't have to be, obviously. Like, you can hunt chucker however you want. But, um, you know, if you were going to buy a dog specifically for chucker hunting, it would have to be a pointing breed. And something that's got some good range to it. Um, you know, I, I hunt wire hairs just because I love them. Um, mm-hmm. I love the versatility of them. Um, I just love their, like, their goofiness and, you know, just how relaxed they are at home. But then how how determined and, you know, tenacious they are in the field and that grit that like, you know, they go from this like goofy kind of cuddle monster at home to just this like insanely determined like killing machine in the field. And the kind of uh, the transition between the two, I, I really like. Um, I think any pointing breed would do great in chakra country as long as it's conditioned for chakra country. So I wouldn't say there's like a best breed out there. Um, and range is, you know, dependent on what you're comfortable with. Um, you know, like I'd love a dog to range, you know, 500 to a thousand yards out in, uh, you know, Montana in flat country because you can cover that ground pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But then a dog ranging a thousand yards in chakra country is, you know, yeah, it might, may find birds, but it's going to pull you way off course and you might have to go down a canyon and up a canyon. And I don't really see the benefit of a huge ranging dog in chakra country just because I don't want to be, you know, just running after him the whole time. I like to. Right. Well, I think pick, cedar, pick I, I would say, Matt, like for the wire hairs that I've hunted with, I think cedar, your dog cedar probably ranges further than most any other wire hair that I've seen. And I don't know if you have experience hunting with other wire hairs in that terrain, but would you say that your dogs like to get out and cover a lot more ground than others if, of the same breed? I, I think cedar does for sure. Um, you know, Summit's definitely a closer ranging dog, and it's only been recently where he's he's kind of making some big casts looking for birds on his own. When I hunt them together, he can, tends to do, a, do the tag along with cedar, um, and it's been pretty difficult to get him out of that habit and i've made more of an effort to hunt him solo and now he's just getting that confidence to go out on his own so he's sort of anywhere from like 150 to 250 or 300 and then cedar is probably 200 to 600 um but cedar will totally turn it on if if you know the opportunity presents itself like if he gets a good whiff of something i mean he I've seen him go out to over a thousand and that, that one time he, I think he locked up at, uh, I don't know, like 1300 or something. And we just saw him as a little, at a little speck across the <laughs> giant canyon. And I forget who I was with, but I was like, we're not going over there. <laughs> like That's not <laughs> an option. Um, so I, I had to like, just get on the collar and get him off of them. Cause it was just way too far. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty happy with the range. I, I hope Summit kind of keeps developing and, and pushes out a bit further. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. To answer your question, I, I've hunted with a few wire hairs. Um, you know, Travis Warren's uh, is a great dog. His dog Harper 
and, mm-hmm. and she'll do the same theater. Like if, if she needs to, she's going to push out as far as she needs. So it's pretty cool to see. Yeah. And I think for people that aren't hunting in habitat, that's vast, like you're in right there. They'd say, I don't want a dog that goes that far. Well, okay. That's, that's fine. If you're in an area where you're hunting 160 acre piece of property for the day or, uh, half a section or even a full section you you're working that you know objectively but if you're in vast mountain country where you you do want the dog to go 500 600 800 feet up above higher that elevation to check it because you have to establish you know where are these birds at it's not flat it's a, it's a totally different experience up there and i want a dog that gets out and, and finds them I want a dog that gets out and finds them here on flat ground too. If there's a rock pile in the middle of a section, I don't necessarily want to go kick the rocks on it. I want my dog to go out there and check it for me. So as long as they're trained to approach it in a way that they don't flush the birds while doing it, it's ideal in my opinion. And I always tell people, hey, you know, it starts with what do you want the dog to be at home? What kind of birds are you hunting in the habitat? And then make the decision from there. But I mean, I personally have fallen in love with dogs that get out there and get after it. Yeah. I I don't think there's anything better than kind of walking along a, you know, a piece of country and just seeing this disgusting, like rock formation, like a thousand feet above you or something. And just being like, man, I have no interest in going there. And you look up like two minutes later and one of your dogs is just running across (laughs) it. Yeah. Now I definitely don't have to go there unless the dog goes on point. And yeah, I, I love that. And the, the other thing I, I love, and I think this this comes with, um, you know, experience is uh, is the dog's willingness to adapt to, to different species and different covers. Because um, my dogs, like when we're hunting grouse and mountain quail, they're both sub 200 yards. And if we're in the thick stuff, they're, they're at 50 yards. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they're, you know, thinking it's chucker country and just blasting through like, you know, some rough grouse habitat. I mean, they they adapt, um, to everywhere we go. And I think that's like important for any bird dog owner is just to get your dog in as many species as possible and just like experience a different terrain and the different nuances between how each species reacts. And, um, I think with that experience, you know, they start to really dial in like what they're after and how they should act in, in, you know, different environments. Yeah, I agree. It's been, uh, fun this season just for Daisy and I, I mean, she's, you know, the, the prairie birds, easily five, six, 700 yards. Um, but when we're hunting rough grouse, I don't really want her to go more than about a hundred. It's really, really thick in the areas that we're targeting them and she'll get out to 200, 250 occasionally, but I really want her to stay one. I just love hearing the bell. Um, I, there's just something about rough grouse hunting to me and, and having the bell. And like when I'm laying in bed at night, I can still hear the bell in my mind. But, um, I, there will be a lot of times where she'll go on point on a rough grouse and the rough grouse will walk off, you know, it might be another 60 yards ahead. Well, and she'll reposition when I get back up and release her. But I don't know. I just, um, I just like her to be a little bit closer and then, yeah, she has freedom to get out there. But then of course, pheasants, you know, or she has freedom, especially with, you know, huns and sharp tails. Uh, but with pheasants too, I mean, that's a whole nother game. Those dang birds in November, I think is the worst time to hunt a pheasant in the Midwest, unless you have a lot of snow. Um, that's why December is so great because we typically have snow. Birds will hold a little bit better, but in November they're pressured. They've learned a lot. 
they're running. And, you know, we shot a rooster the other day on public land and Daisy pointed it four times and it was a solid 550 yards where we ended up flushing and shooting it was 550 yards from her first point. So just to give, you know, people uh, kind of a gauge on how far those things are can run on you, pheasants, it's just, ugh, it's awful, which is why I love birds that hold like a covey of birds, uh, quail, chucker, Hungarian partridge, sharp tail, uh, all day long. I just, I absolutely love it. Let's talk gear. Uh, we'll wrap it up with gear here, Matt. Um, what do you find to be essentials that you take into the field? Obviously it starts with boots. What, what are your favorites that I know you've tried a few different pairs and you've landed on the ones that you love the most or no? Yep. Yeah. I've been using the white boots, Oahe. Um, and they came out sort of three years ago or so, and I've been using them ever since. Um, like you said, I've tried a lot and I've, I've just destroyed several different brands. And pretty much every leading brand out there, I've had, you know, boots not last a season, boots like I had a pair of Kenetrex that didn't even last a month. Um, That's crazy. So, yeah, I've just landed on on these whites and, um, you know, I haven't had any issues, you know, that they're wearing well. You can wear them right out of the box and, and I really like them. The break-in period isn't as long as some of the others? No, I, I literally took a brand new pair and wore them four days straight in Hell's Canyon and had no issues. But I say that with caution because not everyone's foot is the same shape and, you know, with boots. And that's why I hate that, like, what kind of boot question. Um, because, you know, you could wear a pair of Scarpas, which are a narrow fit, you know, they're built on a narrower last. And like, if you've got a big, blocky, wide caveman foot, it's not going to be a great foot for you or a great boot for you. So, you know, I think boots are a very personal choice and you can ask opinions of anyone anywhere about what boots to wear. But the biggest advice I can give anyone is try on boots and get the pair that fits the best, not necessarily the pair you like the best or the pair that, you know, costs the most or costs the least. Get, get the boot that fits the best. Good advice. How about for other um, hunting equipment that you bring up there? Uh, I'm using my Final Rise vest. It's like one of the OGs. I don't even know what what model it is, um, but it's it's seen some miles. Um, so I usually carry that. I've got a first aid kit. It's a mimetic kit, and I've thrown in a few ex extra bits and pieces for the dogs in there as well. Um, can you hold that for a second? I, I was going to ask you about first aid since we're on it. What do you like? Can you just, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but just run through some of the things you have in there for yourself and then for the dog. Yeah. So I got, I, I forget which, which one of my medics kits it is. Um, but it's a pretty small one. And a lot of the things in there can be used on both humans and dogs. So for the size of it, it's pretty comprehensive. Um, the additions that I added in there was uh, a leash, um, some forceps, a stapler, some extra skin glue. Um, I've got some prednisone. I've got, uh, I'm trying to think what else. I threw an extra Benadryl, and whether that works for snake bites or not, I don't know, but I used it last time, and my dog made it just it was a pretty rough experience 
Yeah, that's uh, scary. And I've had people, like you said, I don't know if it works or not. I don't know if anybody knows if it works or not. I've had people say, you know, we've had guests talking about it on this show in the past and we've experienced it and vets say no, vets say yes. I, I don't know what to say about it. I think the vast majority of people have said that I've given Benadryl. My dog is still here. So I think I made the right choice. Yeah. And I think like, you know, you're not giving doses that are, are high enough or consistent enough to cause any sort of like, you know, liver damage or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're not, if there's no like, you know, detrimental effect and I'm not a vet, so I'm kind of talking out of my ass here a little bit, but you know, if there's no detrimental effect, that's obvious and it can't really hurt. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know if it helped or not in my situation last year, but we had it and, you know, we were very, very far from any help. So it was the only option. Um, and yeah, summit was the one that got bit last year and it took us several hours to get to a vet and he was, he was not looking good when we got there. So I'd like to think that it helped. I'd like to think that his rattlesnake vaccine helped. Um, but you know, these things are not foolproof and, and neither is snake training. Um, you know, the, both times my dogs have gotten bit were freak accidents where they were just running through, you know, a piece of country and just ran across a snake. Um, so yeah, I think just being prepared when you go on trips and knowing where the closest vet is. And, um, like in my case last year, having a friend that can help carry the dog out. Um, unfortunately it happened on my first hunt after a double ankle fracture. So I was struggling carrying my oh. 75 pound dog a couple of miles out of there. Well, you, you're talking about the first aid kit. You're talking about your vest. And, and I've hauled a dog out in my vest before. And I think that's something for people to maybe before they go on a, like if it's a real, a real adventure and you're out with your dog, think about what you would do if you had to carry your dog out. Are you going to hold it in your arms all the way out? That's not a very uh, likely or a good plan in my opinion. You know, So do you have a vest that you can put your dog in strap your dog into the back and carry them out. I, I just think that it's something that you should do before you're put in a position where you need to do it. So you have a plan in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it worked great for us, you know, like it's, it's a lot of weight to put a 75 pound dog into, into a bird vest, but it's a lot easier to carry. And the dog isn't, you know, you're not constantly readjusting your arms to carry the dog. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and as we were carrying him out, he was, clearly in a ton of pain so if you can reduce that pain by you know carrying him in a little more of a controlled way then i'm all for it yeah it's interesting too like um you know we've aired uh tv shows where dogs have been hurt and um i've gotten viewers feedback sometimes harsh where they're like how dare you put a dog in the position to get hurt like that and and that kind of feedback and i think to myself i'm like if you're not willing to put your dog, if you're not willing to accept that your dog could get hurt anytime you take them hunting, then you can't hunt or you shouldn't hunt at all. Because I've, I know dogs that have died in the grouse woods on flat ground, jumped over a log and took a, a stick right to the chest and died right there. I know dogs that have slipped on mountains. I know dogs that have fallen on, you know, a lot of stuff that have really hurt them badly, um, in all different kinds of terrain. So 
I mean, if if you if those people that are sending me that kind of messages, basically you can't hunt west of the Mississippi. <laughs> like I don't know, or at least west of the Missouri River, anyway. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, those people are probably also helicopter parents. You know, like I think part of what makes life so good is putting yourself in these positions that. Uh, you know, you're a little bit vulnerable. You're testing your own limits, you know, physically, mentally, like that's what I live for. So Mm -hmm. if, if I'm doing something that doesn't have that feeling to it, it doesn't feel as good. So I'm always going to put myself in positions where, you know, you're a little bit more vulnerable and yeah, stuff can happen, but that's, that's part of it. So I, I don't know. I, I think some people are just a little bit too sensitive and you know, like I lost my short hair right in front of my house getting hit by a car. So you can't control, you know, Everything. what happens. Yeah. You, you sit inside your house on the couch all day, which nobody wants to do. Oh, no kidding. Uh, what's the, what's your, we'll wrap it up with this. What are you most excited about for the rest of this hunting season? I'm excited to start filming some of the cheatgrass cowboy stuff. And I'm excited for my deer tag to close so I can stop thinking about it. <laughs> okay, we'll wrap it up there because I'm at deer camp right now too and there's probably a grouse I'm looking out the window here and there's probably a grouse somewhere in eyesight that I don't see at the moment but there's a dog curled up next to me that I think will find it we got a couple little boys here that might be interested in flushing it and we'll see if we have it for dinner tonight uh, then tomorrow we're going to be after a big buck I hope you get yours Matt and I look forward to watching the rest of your content that you keep putting out there. It's good stuff. Matt Harding, all one word on Instagram and then cheatgrass underscore cowboys. uh, Another page to follow. Both of them have exceptional content. And I'm assuming if people have any other questions too about, you know, maybe some just helpful pieces of advice hunting birds out West, they can reach out to you, Matt. Yep. Always happy to help. Perfect. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good luck with the rest of your season. Yep. Thanks, Travis. Great great catching up. Yep. We'll be back next week with another episode, I believe, from South Dakota. It might end up switching to North Dakota, and I'll tell you why next week on the Flush Podcast. 